0: If you uh, have a copy of the Bible this morning, I want to encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 7. But if you don't have a copy, that's okay. You can find the uh, sermon text printed in the bulletin as well. Uh, Mark chapter 7, verses 24 uh, through 37. We're continuing uh, through this series in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, lately we've been seeing how Jesus has shown himself to be the God of Israel, uh, the one who feeds his people bread from heaven leads them through the stormy sea uh, gives them the law from heaven i mean all these things are reminding us of god through moses and the children of israel uh, but in the next three stories we're going to cover them this morning uh, reading two of them and kind of leaving the third for your own uh, reading and study uh, these three stories are about how jesus now turns to the gentiles he's the god of israel but he's also the god of the nations in fact Uh, He has really picked Israel to work through them in the Old Testament so that He can get to the nations. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. If you'll look at your Bible, let's read together God's holy word. And from there Jesus arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And He entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet He could not be hidden. But she answered, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ifaphtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them not to tell anyone, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God endures forever. Amen. Now even though uh, the Old Testament prophets had foretold that the Messiah would have a worldwide ministry, it was something that the Jewish followers of Jesus were very slow to accept. Uh, They could have read Isaiah, they could have read um, Malachi, they could have read Zechariah, any of the places in the Old Testament, the Psalms, all of which speak of Israel being a light to the nations and bringing the good news of salvation to all peoples. And yet, yeah, even though they probably did read them, they didn't quite get it. Because as Jesus began to tell them about uh, preaching to Gentiles, they drugged their feet. In fact, it would take Peter many, uh, many weeks and months after even the ascension of Jesus to fully understand that he could go to the Gentile Cornelius' house to preach the gospel so that that first Gentile family could be incorporated into the Christian church. It's amazing, isn't it, how long it takes us sometimes to get God's procedure, God's way of working when it doesn't suit us or when it doesn't sort of please us. A lot of people, uh, for example, accuse Christianity of being very exclusive, Um, you know, and usually what we mean by that is uh, God is only letting in the people we don't want him to let in and he's keeping out the people we don't want him to keep out, and and that kind of is always judged by our own tastes and by our own preferences, uh, whatever that, that happens to be. And that varies from person to person and group to group and time to time. And yet in this story we see Jesus doesn't work by our preferences. He doesn't work by our sense of what should be. He works by the Father's plan. By the Father's plan. And that plan is always extraordinarily good. The gospel is exclusive, but it's not exclusive in the way you think it is. Or the way I think it is, and let's talk about that this morning. There's a lot here to cover, and I'm not going to be able to cover it all, but just these three simple questions, I think, will be helpful to us today. Look at your bulletin. Here's the three questions. Uh, Why is the gospel a message for the world and not just for the Jews? Secondly, um, what does the gospel require of the world when it comes to the world? And then lastly, how does the gospel bless the world? Okay? Okay. Why is it for the world? What does it require of the world? And how does it bless the world? This gospel of Jesus according to the Father's plan. All right, first of all, why is it for the world? Well, we've already mentioned this was foretold, but, but granted, this was not, even though it was foretold by the prophets, it was not God's ordinary way of working all throughout the entire Old Testament period. Uh, during that period, he had picked a nation. And he'd settled that nation in a particular geography, a particular land that had borders. And it was mainly just within those borders that God showed his grace in all the world. I mean, and so you can kind of see how after 2,000 years of that way of working, people would be a little bit slow to understand that now the grace of God was going to break outside of those borders into new places. And yet that's precisely what we see Jesus beginning to do here. Uh, in verse 24 it says it in a very important way. Jesus arose from there and went away. And if, you'll, if you had a map of the Holy Land or of, of Israel, and, and you probably do in the back of your Bible, you'll see what we're talking about. He arose from there. Where is there? The nation of Israel, the borders of the Promised Land. And he went over into the region of Tyre and Sidon, which is not in the Promised Land. Tyre and Sidon is to the north and to the west, far up there where Syria and Lebanon are today on the Coast of the Mediterranean Sea. In fact, there are still, you can still visit Tyre and Sidon, you know, or the, ru- the ruins of the ancient cities of Tyre and Sidon up along the coast in Syria and Lebanon, even to this day. These were areas that in Jesus' day were heavily Greek in their culture. There were little tiny communities of Jews, but by and large they were not Jews. And the woman who comes to Jesus, Mark wants you to know she's not a Jew. <laughs> He tells you in several ways, uh, and these would be considered in the ancient world three strikes against her, in, in, in me people would have assumed three strikes against her. Number one, she was a woman, and, you know, sadly, uh, people had very, you know, in many cases demeaning views of women in all the cultures of the ancient world. She was a woman. She was a Gentile or a Greek, it says, which to Jews would have been completely out of bounds, not somebody that we need to go sharing grace with. And then she was a Syro-Phoenician by birth. She was from Phoenicia, Syria. She was from Tyre and Sidon. And as the Jewish historian Josephus writes, the people from Tyre and Sidon were notoriously our bitterest enemies. That's what Josephus writes about them. They were our bitterest enemies. This woman was a woman. She was a Gentile and a Greek. And she was among the people group that at least one Jewish writer thought was their bitterest enemy. And here goes Jesus leaving the promised land to go across the border to this place to share grace. And yet, granted, it doesn't seem at first like Jesus is there to share grace. Did you notice that? It seems like he's not there to share grace. I mean, the first thing we we see is that he, in, in verse 24, he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. I mean, that's not a way to go share grace, right? To go in a house and not want anyone to know you're in there. And yet it seems, at least at first, that was at least outwardly what it appeared that Jesus was doing. Now, I don't believe for a moment uh, Jesus, as the Son of God, uh, actually thought he was going to be able to remain hidden. Uh, he, I mean, he's, he's been around the block at this point, right? Everywhere he goes, trying to hide himself in a house, it doesn't work. I think Jesus understands this. Uh, In fact, you know, Mark understood it too. He says he could not be hidden by this point. It just wasn't possible. Uh, The the message about Jesus was spreading even to Gentile lands. Uh, Mark 3 had told us that even in the region of Tyre, people were talking about this Jesus from Israel and spreading the news of this miracle working teacher. And so he went to a house seemingly to hide, but he couldn't hide. That's a great metaphor, isn't it, for it seemed like for 2,000 years God was hiding his grace within the confines of Israel, but was he really? No, he was building his grace there so that it could go out from there to the world, and that's what Jesus is doing. He seemed to be hiding, and yet he could not remain hidden. Just like the grace of God can't remain hidden. It is a message of public, momentous importance that the God of the universe While we were yet sinners, yet loved us, and yet sent his son to die for us, it's a message you cannot hide. In fact, at the end of this story, the people can't shut up about it. Jesus tells them, hey, don't talk about it yet because you don't, and I think, again, the reason why Jesus is saying this is he knows they don't know enough to talk about it yet. They know enough to be dangerous. And yet, the more he tells them to be quiet, the less they're quiet. Because you just can't hold it in. That message of he does all things well. Don't you love that there? At the end of our passage this morning. He does all things well. You, when you see that about Jesus you can't stop talking about it. You can't stop singing about it. You can't stop sharing it. And so here's Jesus. Seemingly hidden but yet he can't remain hidden. And then look at how he speaks to the woman. Verse 27. It does not seem like he wants to share grace with her. She comes and begs. She falls at his feet. I mean, she's in a very vulnerable position before him. She's bearing her heart, and yet look at what he says. Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs." Jesus. I mean, today we would think Jesus is either a racist or a misogynist, to speak to a woman this way, to speak to a Gentile this way, to, to imply that she's a dog? Now, it, it makes it a little bit better if you know that the Greek word there for dog is actually a more, it's, it's a less, it's not, it's not the stray dog kind of word, it's the it's a word for puppy, actually. It's, it's the word for puppy, little dog. And so, a little, that makes it a little better, maybe you're a puppy, but not really. Not really. I mean, kind of, but, not, but still, this, is, this seems to be rude. At the very least, it seems to be a rebuff against this woman. And yet, we've got to consider some things. Number one, ha- have we seen Jesus ever being rude? Especially to women. In fact, Jesus caught a lot of flack for how much attention he had paid to women. Sometimes people raise scandal because Jesus paid attention to women he shouldn't have paid attention to. Not that he was inappropriate, but people took him as inappropriate because he was being so generous with women. So that can't be this. Uh, He also doesn't tend to hate Gentiles. I mean, there are only a few Gentiles that he heals in the Gospels, but every single one of them he receives with gladness. In fact, usually he commends them for having greater faith than his Jewish (laughs) compatriots. So it can't be that he's racist. And then, you know, if you look at as this story unfolds, clearly the woman doesn't take him as, as being rude. In fact, the woman agrees with him. And we'll see, we'll see that in the second point. But for now, just note, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is simply, it's just like when he came to the house. He seemed to want to be hidden, but he couldn't remain hidden. Here he seems to not want to go to the Gentiles, to this woman, because he's got to go to the Jews first. Notice how he says the children should eat first, but really what he's just teaching us is God's pattern of extending the gospel to all the world. That pattern is simple. He picked the people. He picked Israel. He worked among them. He fed those children first so that from their table the bread of, the, of, the, of grace could be extended to all the peoples of the world. That all the puppies who didn't have a rightful place within the family might one day be brought in children first. And is, Paul says it this way, the gospel is for the Jew first and then for the Greek and then for the Gentile. Uh, every place that Paul went in those early days to preach, he first went to the synagogue to preach to the Jews and only after he had done that did he then go to the Gentiles. That was honoring God's way because God meant Israel to be the light. He wanted the gospel to come through a restored Israel. And so Jesus came to pick 12 men out of Israel so that those 12 men could be like the new foundations of a renewed Israel that would then become the gospel-sending agency out into all the nations of the world. So Jesus is not dismissing the woman. He is being a little bit difficult, we'll admit that. But he's being difficult for a reason, because he wants to test the woman's faith And he wants to teach his disciples that, yes, he's about to heal and show grace to a Gentile. But it's not because he's doing it out of bounds with what God had already predicted would happen. He's doing it exactly the way God said through the prophets. The Jew first, then the Gentile. The children eat the bread. They eat the loaves. The Gentiles get only the crumbs. And then all of a sudden, there's a time when the Gentiles get to sit at the table as children too. Now... You say, "Okay, that's great. I, I like your little lesson about, uh, you know, about Jews and Gentiles. What does this matter? Well, is it not the case that we too can put inappropriate borders around the gospel that Jesus has not put, that God has not put? Perhaps it's um, there are certain people in your life or certain people in the community you think, yeah, they're never going to believe. There is no way." That person could ever enter the kingdom of heaven. It may, I mean, maybe uh, you, you put boundaries in terms of nation and race and ethnicity or language that is spoken. You know, God loves those people, you might think. Well, yes, He does. And yes, He's had an eternal plan to save people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and every shade of skin color that you can imagine. Because God made them all. God is not a territorial God. He's not the God just of the Jews, but of every person. He's not the God just of Americans, but every person. He's not the God just of native-born Americans, but he's the the God of the immigrant American. He's the God of everybody. And so whatever border we, we seek to place on the gospel besides the border that Jesus himself places is illegitimate. And we have to bring down those walls. We have to think about as a church, how do we go out and simply do what God is calling us to do, which is preach the gospel to every creature and not discriminate among those whom we believe God is capable of saving versus those that we believe he's not capable of saving. It's also important today to remember that uh, another way that we place a border around the gospel is we think that what people really need is something besides the gospel, right? We, we, we limit, we put a border in the sense that we limit Jesus' ability to really save the nations. We think what the world needs is this political agenda or this particular financial solution to the economic problems of the world or what people really need is this medical advancement, you know? We, we've, we've become so material in the way that we think that we have forgotten that actually what meets the deepest thirst of the human heart is the spiritual water, the spiritual bread that Jesus Christ alone can bring. And so basically the first lesson is don't put any borders around the gospel that God hadn't put there. Let God be God. And when God wants to get up from here and go there to minister to them, praise the Lord. When God wants to come from them to us, praise the Lord. God can go wherever he wants to go and extend his gracious reign to whomever he wants to extend. And that's a good thing. Don't be like Jonah. Remember Jonah? He thought he could tell God where to send his grace and where not to send his grace. How did that work out for Jonah? Famously. Not very good. Belly of a whale spit out on the land, rebuked and rebuffed by God, a prophet full of self-pity because he believed that grace belonged to him rather than to God. That's the first thing. Now secondly, what does the gospel require of the world? And this is where we get to, okay, there is a border around the gospel, but it's the one Jesus places, not the one we place. There is a way in which Christianity is exclusive. Some people are excluded from the kingdom of heaven, according to the Bible. But it's not based on human borders, languages, skin colors, races. It's based on something different entirely. Uh, look, for example, at how this woman responds to Jesus, verses 28 and 29. Uh, Jesus had seemingly rebuffed her, and yet notice what she says Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, Wow! (laughs) Not really, but you can kind of get that. And and actually in in Matthew's version of this story, he kind of does say wow. Um, he, He adds the detail that Jesus says, What great faith! What great faith you have! Here he says, For this statement go your way. Because of this statement that you have made, the demon has now left your daughter and she went home and found it to be so. What about her answer shows you what the gospel requires of the world? Well, it shows you this. The gospel requires humble, self-denying faith. The gospel requires of all people, regardless of background, humble, self-denying faith. That is the real border that God has put around the gospel. (laughs) That if you don't have humble, self-denying faith, you will not taste the (laughs) grace of the gospel. You'll be shut out. It won't be because of your ethnic background. It'll be because you don't have humble, self-denying faith. It won't be because someone made you do it or kept you back. It's because you and I lacked humble, self-denying faith. This woman models it in a tremendous way. She agrees with Jesus, first of all. If someone said to you, I'm not going to help you because I need to help the children, not the dogs, would you say, yes, Lord? I don't think you would, naturally. I mean, she must know something about Jesus. She must know something about herself that prompts her to say, yes, Lord, to such a seemingly offensive statement. In fact, I'll say that's exactly what it is. I mean, th- a great way to understand that is to think about all the ways she could have responded and maybe ways that we would be prone to respond. I mean, she could have responded in anger, right? How dare you? How dare you? You're in my country. Jewish teacher, Man. How dare you speak to me this way? I'm a Greek after all. A proud culture. We have a long history. Homer and all the rest. How dare you speak to me as if I'm a dog? She doesn't say that, does she? She could have responded in self-pity. Well, I'm never going to get anything good from God. I knew it. Everybody else gets all the good and I get left out every time. Oh, woe is me. But she doesn't. When Jesus tells her she can't have a loaf, she looks for a crumb. She is tenacious in her desire and her her clear perception that she needs what that man can give her. She doesn't respond in self-pity. She doesn't respond in bitterness or demanding spirit or entitlement. She could have. She could have said, well, but I've lived well. I've lived a good life. Or at least I've tried to. Don't you owe me at least this, Jesus? I don't deserve to have a daughter who is demon possessed. I don't deserve that. Won't you give me me at least this for all the good that I've done in my life? She doesn't respond that way. Instead, what does she say? Yes, you're right, Lord. I am a dog and not a child. I'm a puppy under the table. Today it might be true that people sit their puppies at the table and feed them from plates. I don't know. I mean, people are kind of weird with their dogs, I guess. No offense if that's you, but um, it's just my thing. But (laughs) not being a big dog fan personally, but um, it may be true today. But I guarantee you back then that wasn't the case, right? People, People probably didn't do that. And so everybody understood the puppies were on the floor. The puppies were under the table, not seated at the table. And she understood that was her place. Not because she was a Gentile, because she was a sinner. Do you see it? Even Jewish people ought to have seen themselves this way. In fact, they did when they really got it, like David in the Psalm. I am a worm and not a man. You see my sins, Lord. They're, they're more than the hairs of my head. I am a worm and not a man. He went even further than this woman. He's not a dog, he's a worm. And so, yeah, you might put your dog at the table, but you ain't going to put a worm at the table. I guarantee you that. Even today. And David didn't think he was a worm because of where he was born, or because of who his parents were, or because of what his skin looked like. He thought he was a worm because he was a sinner. And he knew that because he was a sinner, he had no claim on the grace of God. He had no claim on the blessing of God. I want to tell you, that is the border around the gospel. If you are not willing to see yourself as a beggar, unworthy of loaves, unworthy even of crumbs, unless they were to fall just by happen chance from the children's plate, you will not be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. You will not be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. Faith is a matter of a humble heart. Think about it. The person that sees how high the mountain is is the person that's down in the deepest valley below the mountain. (laughs) Isn't that right? If you're way up and you look up, you only see a little bit of the mountain. If you exalt yourself high, you you only see a little. If you go up in an airplane exalting yourself real high, the mountain looks a little bit. But if you're down in the deepest valley, the mountain is highest. Scripture tells us that the way up is the way down. If you will come to me, you must deny yourself. You must become like a little child, Jesus said. You must admit that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. Let me read to you. This is a wonderful little thing. This is from a book called Valley of Vision, which I, it, it's a, a collection of old Puritan prayers I collected from all the different you know, Puritans of you know, four or five hundred years ago. And this is the opening prayer after which the book is named. And I just want to read it to you. It says, Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths to see thee in the heights. hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, That the broken heart is the healed heart. That the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. That the repenting soul is the victorious soul. That to have nothing is to possess all. That to bear the cross is to wear the crown. That to give is to receive. That the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells. And the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. Do you understand that? Have you experienced that? Or do you seek great things for yourself? If you seek great things for yourself, I'll tell you what Baruch Said to Jeremiah in the Old Testament, seek them not. Seek them not. Humble yourself. Lower yourself. The real border around the gospel, what shuts people out of the kingdom of God versus what brings them in, is the humble, self denying faith or the lack thereof. This woman, the Syrian, the Greek, was different than a Syrian in the Old Testament named Naaman who came to Elisha and said, I want to be healed. And Elisha said to Naaman, all right, do this. Go seven times and wash yourself in the River Jordan. And that Syrian man said, how dare you tell me to do that? That's a dirty river. We got better rivers in Syria. I could have just stayed there and washed in those rivers. Thankfully, that proud and arrogant man had a few servants who were bold enough to say, I think you ought to listen to the prophet and at least try it out. And the man did try it out and He was healed by dipping seven times in the River Jordan, that dirty Israelite river from his eyes. This woman was a different kind of Syrian. She had already been prepared by the grace of God to see herself as a puppy without a claim on God's grace. And she began to eat the crumbs. And I believe she would eventually eat the loaves. And you can too. Now lastly today, how does the gospel bless the world? Well, do I have to say it? It brings the loaves of of grace and it feeds us deep in our souls to satisfy our longings and our hungers. It, It not only gives to us the blessings that grace gives, but it prepares us to receive those blessings. And that's the reason why I believe this story of the deaf and mute man is found here. Uh, He, too, is probably a Gentile. Let's just note that. Verse 31, Jesus leaves Tyre and Sidon, but he goes to the region of the Decapolis, which is also outside the Promised Land. It's it's also a Gentile area. It was Greek, not Jewish. And they brought to him a man, verse 32, who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged Jesus to lay his hand on him. And then Jesus does the weirdest thing. (laughs) Did you notice what he did? He... It's, it's odd. I mean, you know, Jesus doesn't normally heal people in this way. It's, it's odd. He puts his fingers in his ears. First of all, he takes him away privately. He doesn't usually do that, but he takes him away by himself. Puts his fingers in the guy's ears. Which Has, has anybody ever put their fingers in your ears? <laughs> I mean, that's weird. It's like, what? What are you doing? He spit, touched the man's tongue. Again, what are you doing? He looks up to heaven, sighs, and then speaks to a deaf man a Fafra. An Hebrew Aramaic word for open up. Strange. Why would he do this in this way? Well, number one, think about what it means to be deaf. Um, I can't think of a more isolating disability than deafness. Um, If you were blind, for example, you could still hear people. You could still speak to people. You could still have relationships because relationships are mainly built on the exchange of words. But if you're deaf and mute and have a speech impediment and you can't communicate, I mean, that's lonely. They probably didn't have a system of sign language like they have today back then. It was just people fumbling and bumbling around him. And he was fumbling and bumbling around them. And he probably felt all alone. Maybe that's why Jesus took him alone. (laughs) To show him that the God of the universe saw him and knew him. Maybe that's why he took such a hands-on approach. (laughs) I mean, it's almost like Jesus is communicating through sign language with this man as he heals him. Uh, normally, he would say things to the person that he's healing, ask them questions. This time, he's just touching, spitting, sighing. I mean, things that you can see, looking to heaven. He, he's communicating the method and the way in which he's taking the power of God in heaven and he's bringing it down into his sympathetic heart, a heart that sighs over human concerns. And he's touching those things that don't work in the man's body and he's making them come alive. Why is this story here? Why do we have Jesus doing sign language healing to a deaf man right after this story? Right after people start talking about him everywhere they go in Gentile lands. I think it's only because of this. To show and remind us and every Christian after that the only thing that gets you into the kingdom is humble, you know, self-denying faith. And that that faith comes by the touch of Jesus. The scripture paints the picture that human beings are not only worms, but they're deaf worms. God speaks and nobody hears. But as the Bible says about the woman Lydia, another Gentile, that when the gospel was preached to her, God opened her heart to hear what Paul said. Just like this man opened, Jesus opened this man's ears. We also read about how Gentiles, when they received the Holy Spirit, began to speak with tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They began to speak with their tongues in other languages, the great and mighty acts of God. God loosened their tongues, and He does that for every Christian. Not that you you speak in other languages necessarily, but He loosens your tongues to speak. Yes, Lord. I am a dog, but can I at least get some crumbs? Because whatever amount of what you have that you give me is enough for me, even just a little bit. It's the Lord who touches the ears, it's the Lord who touches the tongue. It's His power, His His spit that contains the power, not our lives. And so once again, this is a reminder, the way up is the way down. Uh, learning to live for Jesus and live in the kingdom is learning that salvation came by grace, but he even prepared you for that salvation by grace. He touched your life. He opened your ears to hear. He opened your mouth to speak, and he shows you that he is with you every step of the way. The one who comes from heaven, the one who looks to heaven, sighs by your side. The Son of God sighs along with you. We would never see that. We would never hear that. Let alone accept it. Were it not for the powerful touch of Jesus. He does all things well. Christian, do you know you were prepared for salvation by God? That you owe it all to Him? Do you know, Christian, that you're known by God? If even this... Anonymous, isolated, deaf man in a far-off foreign land was known by Jesus the Savior. How much more the child who's been adopted into the family of God by His blood. He knows you, He sees you, He sighs with you. Church, don't you know that we have been fully equipped to bring the gospel to our neighbors because He opened our ears and He's loosened our tongues. I love the the song we sang at the beginning of, of the service. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. And it says... He makes the deaf to hear and you mute. Your loosened tongues employ. Employ those tongues that have been loosened by the grace of God to share the testimony that you've been given. Because Jesus' will is not that the gospel would come to us and stay with us. But like Israel before us, the gospel comes to us to go out from us to find that next person Who's begging for bread? Isn't that good? What a story that the Messiah's worldwide ministry starts like this to remind us of the need for humble faith and to remind us of where that humble faith comes from. That it too is a part of the blessing of the gospel of Jesus, that Jesus is the tongue loosener (laughs) and the ear opener. (laughs) and the deep sire, sympathizer with our sorrows and our needs. Amen.